In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America and as the Bishop of the Diocese of the South, I have to say it's great to be home. And I want to say thank you for your prayers for Allison and me as we are really your missionaries uh, to the wider church. I know typically it's, it's done the other way around. Uh, someone comes to the church and the pastor commissions them out to, to be a missionary somewhere. Well, y'all did that to me. And um, so I just want to say thank you. It's great to be back. Um, also, um, I'm just so grateful to the Lord for, uh, in his providence for raising up Michael Guernsey uh, to be the dean of, of this place. And uh, very excited about him, his walk with God, his love for the people of God, and his love for the word of God. And his ability to communicate. So you guys are blessed big time having Michael here. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word. Come in the power of your spirit. We ask that you would use this time to speak to our hearts a fresh word. That we might then apply it in our lives. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week I was driving through our neighborhood. And I was noticing all of the Christmas decorations, which had already been put up. And as I was driving, I was looking at them through the eyes of someone who has no clue about what it means to follow Jesus, and what they were wondering about some of our decorations. I mean, what do they mean? And what do they really have to do with Christianity? What, why is it so important to Christians to put these things out at Christmas? I mean, the lights, snowmen, candy canes. I mean, what does a candy cane have to do with Christmas? Wreaths, we've got them around the church this morning. Red bows, deer, toy soldiers, Christmas trees, all these things. Now, if you pay attention to such things, many of these items, they're actually historical and theological reasons why they're brought out at Christmas. But again, I was attempting took a look at these things through the eyes of someone who would find all these things very foreign and very strange. And then I began to wonder if those of us who are believers actually know the meaning of many of these decorations. Have they lost their meaning to us? Well, with that in mind, I want to invite you to open up to our reading this morning from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, you can turn your Bible on with your phone. Or there's one in the, in the chair in front of you. Luke chapter 3. We're going to be at verse 15. Now Luke is sharing here about the ministry of John the Baptist. And in verse 15, we find these words. As the people were in expectation... All were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. For about 450 years, the voice of God had been quiet. No prophets, no proclamations of, thus saith the Lord. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene calling people to repent of their sins and to turn to God. People were anticipating the Messiah. As the text says here, they were in great expectation. And the people were wondering if John was the Messiah. 
But like the Christmas decoration traditions, which have sprung up in our culture, many traditions and ideas have been bubbling up about the Messiah. So much so that many people were claiming that they were the Messiah, and people were actually following after them. That is until the Roman government killed them off. But those in the know who studied the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call our Old Testament, they knew that there were certain prophecies and attributes that the Messiah must have. Actually, Jesus fulfilled hundreds of these prophecies from the Hebrew Scriptures. But this morning, I want to focus on some of the basic understandings about this anticipated Messiah, on his attributes. Not the prophecies about the time and the place and, and the, the kind of life he would live. I'm going to call these prophetic glimpses of the coming Messiah. And I've got seven that I would like to share. The first prophecy was that the Messiah would be from the seed of Eve. The seed of Eve. Now this is the most amazing of all the prophetic glimpses we're given. Immediately after what we know is the fall, when man and woman brought sin into the lives of and in, into their lives and into the lives of the world, it was at this time that God immediately begins a plan to remedy this great evil which had entered the human experience. Sin. Rejection of God's ways, selfishness, separation from being able to fellowship with God, hiding, loneliness, alienation, on and on it goes. God immediately creates a plan to crush down Satan. But the plan is absolutely astounding. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord is speaking to the serpent and his part of the fall. And he writes this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As part of the plan, God would enter the human race himself. Amazing. He would be from the offspring of Eve. The one who brought sin into the world would provide offspring which would rescue the world from that very sin. It's fascinating to me that in the original Hebrew language for what we translate offspring, it's the word seed. And if you know your biology, women carry the egg. Men carry the seed. Yet the language is clear that from the seed of the woman... He would come forth to deal with Satan's demise. It's a clear allusion to the virgin birth, which will produce the Messiah. No human seed, only the human egg. As Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 9, For in him, meaning Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells dwells bodily. Amazing. Astounding. Theologically, we call this the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas. God entering the human race in the form of a baby. Well, a second prophetic glimpse, glimpse is that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. 
In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, the Lord says this to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there's a lot packed into these two verses, but I want to focus on the promise the Lord gives when he says he will bless Abraham. And through him, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. It was clear that the Messiah was going to come from the offspring of Abraham. And that he would be a blessing not just to Jewish people, but to all the peoples of the earth. The Apostle Paul actually picks up this in his letter to his early followers, to the early followers of Jesus in Galatia, when he says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is the Messiah. A third prophetic glimpse is that he would be in the priesthood of Melchizedek. In the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now another prophetic glimpse of the coming Messiah relates to this strange and little known character called Melchizedek. We see him only three times in the Bible. He encounters Abraham after Lot is rescued in Genesis 14. He is named in a prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 4, which says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews, the letter of the Hebrews, compares him to Jesus. What is significant about this is that it points out that the Messiah's priesthood would not be from the tribe of Levi, which is where all the Hebrew priests were supposed to come from. Some even argue that Melchizedek is actually one of the physical manifestations of the second person of the Trinity before he entered the human race in the person of Jesus. I mean, after all, he brings out, if you read the story in Genesis 14, he brings out to Abraham bread and wine. Where have we seen that before? He blesses Abraham. And then Abraham offers him his tithe, a tenth. Of all of his, who do you offer the tithe to? Jesus, we're told, was in the order of Melchizedek, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, the fourth prophetic glimpse is that he would be a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now after Moses lived on earth, there was prophet after prophet after prophet. But when the voice of the Lord fell silent for those 450 years, people began to associate this promise with the Messiah. Remember when Jesus began his ministry in John 6, 14? The people were saying, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They were associating this with this prophecy. And it's also fascinating when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
with Moses and Elijah there. What does God say out of the cloud? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. These are the same exact words that are found in Deuteronomy. That you are to listen to the prophet. A fifth prophetic glimpse is that the Messiah would be the king of kings. He would be a king of kings, a king like David, a king actually descended from David. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament about this, but I want us to look at one. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Now, most people listening to John the Baptist and were questioning whether he was the Messiah, most of them expected the Messiah to be a king. A king to overthrow the Roman tyrants and the beast and to restore the Jewish people to their rightful place. But the prophets forecasted a different kind of kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom, but a kingdom of God. We would now call it a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom which would be righteous, as Jeremiah 23, 5 says. The days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and, and shall reign, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This kingdom would be righteous. This kingdom would also be peaceful. He will be a prince of peace. This kingdom would also be eternal. For the increase of his government, there shall be no end. It go on forever. And that this kingdom would also be global. It was for all the peoples of the earth. This king, this Messiah was far beyond what most people of the first century could comprehend. A sixth prophetic glimpse of the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah gives a glimpse of a coming Messiah that he would be a servant. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we see this. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And actually, if you study Isaiah... That long prophet, long book of prophecy. Isaiah paints a picture of this servant in what's called the four servant songs. The servant Messiah is painted as a teacher. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. This teacher would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. He'd be gentle and he'd reach out to the nations. This servant Messiah would be painted as an evangelist. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. He'd be a light to the Gentiles, to those at the ends of the earth. This servant Messiah is painted as a disciple. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. The Lord God awakens his ear every morning so he can hear, and then he can speak the words of God. And then this coming Messiah would be a suffering Savior. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. This servant would be stricken and placed and pierced through and placed in a place where the iniquity of the world, of all of us, would fall upon him. Isaiah says this Messiah would be a servant 
but a servant in four aspects, four different ways. And then lastly, the last one, we would, the last prophetic glimpse, we would say that the most coming Messiah would be the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The last prophetic glimpse, in a way, ties back to the first. The coming Messiah, though, was not just to be a Son of Man. He was to be the Son of Man. The prophet Daniel describes it this way. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He became the ancient of days and presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man. Son of man. You know, this is the way Jesus often referred to himself, the Son of Man. We, we see other people referring to him as the Son of God, but he always called himself the Son of Man. There was one time when Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer. John Stott points out that he does something here no one else had done. He fused the glory of Daniel 7 with the suffering of Isaiah 53 in order to teach that it was only through suffering that he would enter into his glory. His words, the Son of Man must suffer, brings these two images together. These were seven prophetic glimpses of the Messiah. So you can wonder why in the first century, when they're looking for the Messiah, there's all kind of confusion, and they're wondering. So they're coming to John the Baptist here in great expectation, and they know the Messiah was coming, and they're asking in their hearts if John was the Messiah. And then John answers in verse 15, No, I'm not he. He knew his scriptures. He knew what the Messiah was to be about. Look how he says it, verse 16. I baptize with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Ra rather than lowering, lowering their expectations, he refocuses them on the spiritual I may be a prophet of the Lord, but he's mightier than I. He is the Lord. I'm only baptizing you with water. He is going to baptize you with God's very presence, the Holy Spirit. I'm only calling you to repentance. He will act on your repentance, separating his wheat, that is those who repent and follow him, from the chaff, that is those who remain in their sin. So what is our takeaway from the scriptures that we've heard this morning? Lots of them. That the mantra of these folks listening to John was that the Messiah is coming. But what kind of Messiah? Well, we know the rest of the story. That he did come. And he ushered in the, king, he ushered in the kingdom of faith. A kingdom of people restored into right relationship with God. A kingdom of people baptized with the Holy Spirit and with God's fire. 
Through the Messiah Jesus, God invites people everywhere, from every tribe, every race, every nation, to come and to be a part of his kingdom, to receive the forgiveness of their sins, to receive assurance of eternal life, to be indwelt by the literal presence of God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. But as with any invitation, it must be accepted. We must RSVP. And we do that by faith. We invite him in by faith. We receive his forgiveness by faith. We have assurance of eternal life by faith. So my brothers and sisters, I just want to challenge you this morning on this, the third Sunday of Advent. He is coming again. Have you accepted his invitation? Have you received him into your heart and into your life by faith? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. And I ask that if there's anyone here who's never yielded to you, Lord, never bent the knee of their heart and invited you in, that even today they would have the courage and the faith to do so. Meet them in their need. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.